You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. Our scripture today is from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. So that's Mark 3, 7 through 19. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan, and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd... He told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him, to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. Jesus went up on the mountainside and called to him, called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simeon, who he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bogernus, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simeon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning. It's good to be with you all. And uh, I'm a little, I feel like I'm a little warm and sweaty from worship. <laughs> but that's, with, that's probably too much information. I'm sorry. But <clears throat> it's awesome to be able to worship together as families, have our kids here among us. And uh, thank you for everyone that participated in our members meeting yesterday. I thought that was a, a good time for our church to be together to make some important decisions like welcoming, I'm seeing Andy Galpin right over here, welcoming Andy and Rachel Chan into the, into the membership of our church. And then also, um, I mean, spoiler alert, you saw Kat's title change on the screen there. She is now our deacon of children's ministry. And also our very own Brad Anderson, who you might have interacted with on the way in, is now deacon of uh, counting and, not accounting, might as well be, deacon of counting and security. So anyway, among other things, um, thank you for participating in that and for braving the cold to be here today to worship God, to hear from his word. And we are continuing in our series in the book of Mark, um, seeing how Jesus, especially in this passage, went about dealing with the pressures, the multitude of pressures that he faced. Um, I would just love to lead us in a word of prayer before we dive in this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we worship you. We thank you for this key opportunity to gather as your body in worship, in all of its various aspects, through your word, through prayer, through song, Lord, would you capture us this morning with the truth of your word? Would you open our eyes to see 
what you're doing, our ears to hear what you're saying. And Father, even on this weekend, we remember and we thank you for the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Lord, we thank you for the ways that he stood for justice and righteousness. Father, all that you have done in and through him and how his legacy still speaks today. So Lord, would you help us even tomorrow, not necessarily with a day off, but a day on in remembrance and in moving forward, Lord. We pray that you might even open our eyes as we encounter the truth of your word this morning to see even among the crowds the, the diversity of those, Lord, that came to interact with you, Lord Jesus, and the healing that you have brought to the nations. So, Lord, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As I was reflecting on this passage this week, I couldn't help but see and think about the ways that we, many of us, face immense pressures today, often from a, from a variety of different angles, depending on your, you know, whether it's family pressures, whether it's school pressures, expectations that you have perhaps weighing down on you, whatever the case may be. And I feel like God used a moment during our, our Friday night pizza and movie night, watching the movie Encanto. Has anybody seen that? Maybe just by a show of hands. Now, oh wow, okay. So, I hope I have not ruined you with some earworms that may already be creeping into your mind as you're thinking about this, but anyway, it's Louisa. That's, I will not sing the other song that shall not be sung, but it's Louisa, the strong one, right, who sings of the pressure that she's experiencing like a drip, drip, drip that'll never stop. Pressure that'll tip, tip, tip till you just go pop. Man, couldn't help but see even in this text the ways that Jesus experienced pressure from so many different angles. But then in the second half of this passage, it really speaks to what Jesus did in the face of mounting pressure. And that's what I want to do with our time together this morning, is first of all to be reminded that Jesus knows what it feels like to face mounting pressure from all around us, from all around us. And first, Jesus faced the pressure of growing opposition from the religious leaders. If you think back to the previous passage, it comes at the end of these five controversy stories surrounding Jesus. All of them intersect with the religious leaders in some way, shape, or form. And they reach a boiling point in the last two of those from Mark 2, 23 through 3, 6, that focus on Jesus declaring and demonstrating that he is Lord of the Sabbath. And it is at this point that the Pharisees are willing to set aside their differences with even some of their enemies in a plot to assassinate Jesus. And Matthew's gospel has a really interesting detail when kind of sewing these together, showing that Jesus was aware of the Pharisees' plot at the beginning of this story here in Mark. Matthew 12, verse 14, but the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place, and so on. So first, from the religious leaders. Second, Jesus faced the pressure of growing popularity among the crowds. Growing popularity among the crowds. Look at verses 7 and 8. 
Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. We see, first of all, Jesus retreating to the sea, a much more neutral place than what has panned out in the synagogue as of late. And I don't know about you, but I, I just often view Jesus in like this idyllic setting, like in green grass or under a shady tree, you know, like kind of, you know, I don't know, it, maybe what else to say other than that, but the reality here involves a crowd pressing in on him so much that he has enlisted a getaway driver. <laughs> he has a boat at the ready to keep from being crushed by the weight of the crowd. What is clear is that Jesus attracts larger and larger crowds from even a wider region, or wider uh, sets of regions even, as the religious leaders reject him, demonstrating the range that we see in the Gospels of the different reactions to Jesus. These crowds come in two phases. First is the growing crowd from the surrounding region of Galilee. But then come crowds from the neighboring regions, and that's where things get a little surprising here in this text. Judea and Jerusalem seem natural, perhaps, at first, but the rest, look at, if you look at them a little more closely, Idumea is what was Edom in the Old Testament. It included a diverse population of Jews and Gentiles. Even Tyre and Sidon were largely Gentile at this point, ethnically diverse and are now a part of modern-day Lebanon. There is an active interest in Jesus by people across a wide region. And over the course of the Gospels, Jesus visits these different regions, showing that his ministry is not restricted to a single cultural community. People began crossing boundaries of ethnicity, of geography, of religion, language even, and culture in order to be with Jesus. To be with Jesus. And I believe this anticipates then the church's mission to the world. And rightly so, since the kingdom of God is made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus continuously affirms the kingdom, this kingdom diversity and commissions his followers to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Even in Mark 13, Jesus says, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. To all the nations. So, pressure from the religious leaders, pressure from the growing crowds. Third, Jesus faced the pressure to perform miracles of healing and deliverance. Look at verses 9 and 10. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. These verses reveal what primarily attracts this diverse crowd to Jesus. And it's not so much his teaching, even though that is his main aim and focal point in calling people to the kingdom of God. His popularity is due more to his miracles. And that is what the crowd, that's what causes the crowd to press in on him. 
hoping just to touch Jesus and to experience some of his healing. I mentioned that, that getaway boat, but it, it reminds me of the, uh, um, what, do you, what would you call it? We, we had this heating system in our previous home that was, had like radiant floor heating. Oh man, just thinking about the toasty floor oh, in a cold winter, I'm sorry. But uh, it was on a boiler system and it required having pressure release pressure relief valves, and sometimes you'd hear the little hiss hiss of that, some of those air pockets and things being released so that the water could continue to flow through the system. I can't help but think about that. In a sense, Jesus needed a pressure relief valve here in the form of a boat at the ready so that he would not be crushed. And what we see really in these different reasons for Jesus' popularity sets up what we'll see in Mark 4, the parable of the soils, the different ways that people react. There in the parable of the soils, Jesus differentiates among those who show initial excitement and fall away versus those who respond to the truth and yield a kingdom harvest, an unbelievable harvest. So the religious leaders, the crowds, the pressure to heal, to perform miracles, and then fourth, Jesus faced pressure from evil spiritual forces. Look at verses 11 and 12. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. In the Gospels, we see Jesus confronting and conquering evil spiritual forces, showing that the kingdom of God has come in and through him. But at this point in Mark's Gospel, only the narrator at the beginning, the Father, God the Father, in chapter 1, verse 11, and then the unclean spirits acknowledge who Jesus really is. These unclean spirits heave their victims toward Jesus, crying out, you are the son of God. But there's more than meets the eye here. In ancient times, this, there was a belief that in knowing and speaking someone's precise name and in the, and their essence, what made them who they are, it was an attempt within the spiritual realm to try to gain mastery over them. So even in doing this, the spirits are attempting, even in their terror, to gain mastery over Jesus, but their attempts prove futile. Still, I can't help but see a hint of irony here because the demons know that he is the son of God while the crowds, many in the crowds, only view him as a miracle worker. But Jesus silences the unclean spirits. He reveals his power over them. And more than just simply putting them under a gag order, he rebukes them. That is what the underlying meaning in the text. He muzzles them. Why? because they are the wrong source at the wrong time. Jesus had not yet been fully revealed, and he would do things the Father's way, in God's time and in God's way. So putting it all together, the Pharisees were watching his every move, waiting for their opportunity to strike. The crowd swelled in size and came from the surrounding regions, wanting to catch a glimpse of Jesus. People, including the sick, surged toward him, hoping 
to get close enough to touch him and experience his healing power. And the demons wreaked havoc on their victims while sizing him up, both in hatred and in terror. While Jesus was fully God, he was also fully man and experienced immense pressure. And we can take heart knowing that he has gone before us. He knows what it is like to experience suffocating stress. He knows what that feels like. Anne Morrow Lindbergh, who was the wife of Charles Lindbergh, wrote in the book Gift from the Sea. This is in 1955, which I found really interesting because it still speaks so much today. Listen to what she wrote. The life I have chosen as wife and mother entrains a whole caravan of complications. It involves food and shelter, meals, planning, marketing, bills, and making the ends meet in a thousand ways. It involves not only the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, but countless other experts to keep my modern house with its modern simplifications, electricity, plumbing, refrigerator, gas stove, dishwasher, radios, car, and numerous other life-saving devices functioning properly. It involves health, doctors, dentists, appointments, medicine, vitamins, trips to the drugstore. It involves education, spiritual, intellectual, physical, schools, school conferences, carpools, extra trips for basketball or orchestra practice, tutoring, camps, camp equipment, and transportation. It involves clothes, shopping, laundry, cleaning, mending, letting skirts down and sewing buttons on, or finding someone else to do it. I like that part. It involves friends, my husband's, my children's, my own, and endless arrangements to get-togethers, letters, invitations, telephone calls, and transportation, hither and yon. That should just go on the side of minivans in our church. Transportation, hither and yon. To bring it a little more up to date, I saw a tweet. I wish I could, maybe somebody else saw this and can help me find it, but I just feel like I just saw a tweet flash, you know, quickly on the screen, and it was one of those kind of, you know that maybe snarky use of, like, how it's going? Have you seen that use? Like, this is how it's going, right? And it was essentially that someone had made an event simply inviting people to a field to scream. And it had like hundreds of RSVPs. People just saying, yes, I will meet you in a field to scream. That sounds like a great idea. And yet I think that is very revealing for the day and age that we live in and the immense pressures and the stress that we experience. But Jesus did not allow anything, not even popularity and what looked like success, keep him from fulfilling his primary calling. In thinking about the crowds, how easily, easily we can be swayed by the allure of the crowds. And then the goal becomes trying to keep the crowds, maintain and grow those crowds no matter what it takes. Daniel Aiken, in writing on this, says, we must not allow ourselves to be manipulated by ungodly agendas regardless of the praise we may be paid the positions we may be proffered, or the prosperity we may be promised. In thinking about the immense pressures that Jesus faced, then the question becomes, how did Jesus deal with such mounting pressures? And I believe that is one way that the, the following verses are instructive for us today. If you look on at verses 13 through 19, 
to overcome the multiple pressures he faced, Jesus took active steps that are instructive for us today. Surmounted is perhaps a word we don't use as often. Maybe it was my attempt at being a little too cute. I don't know. But it basically means to overcome, to overcome a difficulty or obstacle. And I think there are at least four ways here in, this, in the, these verses that Jesus demonstrates the surmounting of pressure. The first being that Jesus surmounted pressure by withdrawing to be alone. By withdrawing to be alone. It really is in several places in the Gospels that we see Jesus doing this, getting away by himself, often early in the morning. Here it says Jesus went up on the mountainside. In the Old Testament, the mountain is the place of revelation. It is, there is so much that surrounds it. It is a place of communion with God. We see such giants in the faith like Moses and Elijah and what they do and experience on the Mount of the Lord. In our own lives, think about how little silence and solitude we often have. We are inundated the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep by screens, by to-dos, by little people, can I say that? By so much. Even Jesus needed to get away, and so do we. Maybe one question that we need to wrestle with even today is what are the ways that we can actively carve out and protect opportunities in our lives for stillness, for solitude? Even in looking at the way that Jesus did this, part of his time, part of his time uh, withdrawing was spent doing something very crucial. And so second, Jesus surmounted pressure by praying to his Father. Bear with me for I shouldn't use the word cheating necessarily, but again, Luke's gospel sheds light on this same episode as well. And Luke 6, verse 12, says this, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And then verse 13, when morning came, he called his disciples to him, chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Jesus saw the calling of the 12 disciples as such a crucial decision in his ministry and for God's kingdom that he spent all night in prayer before calling them. Even Jesus, the Son of God, needed to find a quiet place to commune with his heavenly Father. And what's more, he spent hours in prayer, especially leading up to such a crucial decision. Church, we would, we would do well to learn from him in this as well. Withdrawing to be alone, spending time communing with his Father in prayer. And third, Jesus surmounted pressure by calling people to join him in the journey. Calling people to join him in the journey. Look at verses 13 and the beginning of verse 14. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him. Pause there. This statement of calling those he wanted is a statement of election. This is clearly Jesus' design. This is Jesus' initiative. We see in the Gospels that there were actually many disciples that were following after Jesus. 
And it is from among this larger group of disciples that Jesus hand-selects and appoints these 12. These 12 who represent in a new way the 12 tribes of Israel and show Jesus establishing a new covenant community, a holy nation, as 1 Peter says, called the church. Jesus also chose to use, as the Gospels play out, chose to use very imperfect people. It serves to make the grace of God even that much more wonderful. Like in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, but we had this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. These are not, really there are no super saints in the New Testament, just sinners who are saved by the grace of God. Verses 14 and 15 then revealed Jesus' twofold purpose in calling the 12. The first is that they might be with him. Think about this. The disciples spent three years watching and learning the ways of the master, training under him. They shared his life. They spent time with him and learned a pattern to trace their lives after him. This echoes the call of the first disciples earlier in Mark when Jesus says, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. But following wherever he goes would also mean being willing to share in hardship, enduring the crush of the crowds, and being willing to drink from the same cup of suffering as Christ. As eyewitnesses to his life and his ministry, the 12 would authenticate and pass on his ministry wherever they would be sent. I believe this passage is a powerful reminder for you and for me of the need to simply be, to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet, to learn his ways, spending time with him so that we are formed more and more into his image and come to have our lives, just as the disciples, to have our lives traced around his pattern. Following Jesus in the costly way of discipleship also, though, means being willing to suffer. Being willing, willing to suffer. I love in Acts 4, verse 13, when the religious leaders are looking at the, perhaps the, the faith on display of Peter and John, it says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and, relig- and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These governing authorities took note that he had, they had been with Jesus. This passage also reminds us to invite others along, just as Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. It begs the question, who are you sharing your life with? Who might God be placing on your heart to begin an intentional disciple-making relationship with? Reflecting on how Danielle and I have had the privilege over the years of having different people live with us and how we've come to discover that there is so much more that is perhaps caught rather than taught. Who will you seek out as an apprentice in the faith and invest in for the sake of the kingdom. 
just as these disciples took the life-giving message of hope to the ends of the earth. Who might God be placing on your heart to invite in that we might say, follow me as I follow Christ? Fourth, Jesus surmounted pressure by extending his mission through others. Extending his mission through others. Picking up the rest of verse 14, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Here is the second purpose of Jesus calling his disciples, that he, that he would send them. The apostles are sent ones. They are dependent upon Jesus for everything that they need. And what we see here is the connection between word and action, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Carrying on his work as they go of building the kingdom. Being with Jesus is what qualified them. This was an essential prerequisite for going out on mission. And being with Jesus should lead to a life of service to others. Being channels of his power and of his grace. Look at the roster of the 12, then picking up here in verse 16. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To, to them he gave the name Boenergis, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This list has some, a couple of things to point out, some surprises along the way. It begins with who we might call the inner three, that is Peter, James, and John. This, this group of three would then be a part, as we'll see in Mark, will be a part of some of the biggest moments in Jesus' life and ministry, like in the transfiguration, being brought into the very room as Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, and in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. It is Peter, of course, who comes to confess that Jesus is the Messiah, but he also in turn denies even knowing Jesus. Only Mark has this key detail about <clears throat> James and John being given the nickname Sons of Thunder. I would love to know more. We have some clues in the Gospels about some of their thick-headedness, I guess. Uh, maybe a more up-to-date way of saying that would be, would be like saying thunder and lightning, right? But then there are a couple of other surprises along the way. We have Matthew, the tax collector that earlier Jesus calls to follow him, who was in league with the state, right? If you remember back to that story. But then Simon the Zealot. Zealots sought to overthrow the Roman government. They were nationalistic in their ways. Only the gospel could bring these two together. Only the gospel could bring these two together, Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Here is a group of men who came from unique backgrounds with different passions, but united in the common cause of Christ. In every list, Judas is listed last. And his betrayal is mentioned. This is the first shadow of betrayal, in fact, in the gospel. 
Tradition even goes on to tell us, though, about the ways in which these 12 were used for the building up of the kingdom and how many of them met their own martyrdom. Jesus used these 12 to change the world. And just as Jesus sent the disciples to preach, to combat evil spiritual forces, so he sends you and me today. The church should be a community that gives evidence to the very power of God. And we are not to sit on the sidelines, but to take an active part in standing up and confronting evil in the power and majesty of God. And so just as we think about who are we inviting in to spend time with, to help learn the ways of Jesus, who are you deploying to bear witness to the gospel and word and deed? Remembering that Peter denied Jesus, that Thomas doubted him, that James and John were the two, if you remember the story, that were jockeying for position within the kingdom, who can sit on my left and my right? I think their mom was involved in that too, if I remember the story. And most of them fled at his crucifixion, reminding us that God uses broken people, that his power can still work through you and me to multiply his ministry here on earth. And only the gospel, only the gospel can unite people from such a diverse background. Only the gospel can do this. Zooming out here for a moment, I could probably preach a whole other message on this, but I just want to like kind of zoom out a bit and point out one other, one other key detail in this text. And that is that I believe we see Jesus' heart for disciple-making in different contexts on display in this passage. We see how Jesus interacts with the crowds. We'll see even as we go on in Mark his strategy for how he interacts with the crowds, how he teaches the crowds. But then we also see Jesus and the disciples, these 12 that he invites in, that he explains more to and shares his life with. Then we see Jesus and the three. I think I, I, think I skipped one as I went. Jesus and the crowds, Jesus and I mentioned that larger group of disciples that followed him. But then Jesus and the 12 that he invited in. Then Jesus and the three, Peter, James, and John, that he brings in even more to these critical moments in his life and ministry. And yes, even Jesus and his heavenly father. How he got alone with his father, spent time communing with him and praying. And I believe that these different contexts for disciple making are instructive for us as believers today as well. How we go about making disciples among those around us, the crowds. The church is the community of disciples. Our ethos community is almost as like bands of the 12. Now, I know some of them range in size from 7 to 27. I don't know exactly. There's, there are some larger ones among us. Jesus and the crowds, the disciples, the 12. I think there is a growing need, though, in our church for this, this fourth environment, if you will, of disciple-making. That it was Jesus and the three. I long for and pray for more and more smaller groups, perhaps even seeing our ethos communities as the fishing pond for these kinds of groups, where we are even more known and fully known by others. 
and are transparent in our relationships and accountable to one another. And yes, Jesus and the Father, may we as a church spur one another on in our own individual relationship with our God and King. Like I said, I could preach a whole other message on that, but I was particularly struck by even in this passage how each of those environments of disciple-making arises from this text. But ultimately, Jesus knows. Jesus knows what it is that you're going through. He knows and cares, and he has gone before you in the race of faith, and he now cheers you on even as you experience mounting pressure. He knew that pressure from the religious leaders, the crowds, the pressure to perform, and even the pressure of evil spiritual forces who threw their victims at Jesus in an attempt to gain mastery over him. What we see Jesus doing in this passage is withdrawing to be alone and even more so communing with his Father in prayer, calling people, not taking a go-it-alone approach, but calling others to journey with him and sending them out, sending them out to continue the mission. I pray that this passage is, I pray that this continues to speak clearly to us as a church that, and that it would be the part of the wind in our sails as we look to what it means to overcome the pressures that we face in our lives. We're going to reflect on this more as it comes to communion, but let's pray. Let's pray here. Our Father, we thank you for this text, for this story, for your plan, and for selecting these 12 to be with you, Lord Jesus, and then sending them out to change the world. Father, I know that there are many among us here that are facing immense challenges, feeling that pressure, that suffocating pressure from all around us, Lord. We pray that through your gospel you might work in our lives, that you would show us how your son went about handling these pressures. And Father, if nothing else, I pray that you would help us to spend time communing with you, our creator, our sustainer, you who know everything and who say, come to me. Lord, we are in awe of who you are. We thank you for your work in this world and how you use imperfect people to carry your gospel forward. So Lord, would you find us faithful in that task, all for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.